Foundry Church, we are so excited that you are our Valentine. Yeah, it's Valentine's weekend. You know, one thing um, I don't like about holidays being on weekends is that when I was little, I remember it was such a big deal in school when you got your Valentine box out and you'd like decorate it and then you'd make your Valentines and you'd go put them in. And then it was always the one kid who was mean to you. You're like, no, not for you, sir. You know, and you wouldn't give a Valentine to some people. But then there was a girl you liked And you're like, you get a Valentine, and I'm going to put a larger than normal sucker in there and be like, that's for you, beautiful, right? And you would go check your Valentine's box afterwards, and you'd look in there, and you would hope so much that she had given you one. Didn't always happen, and it's okay. Things worked out. I'm fine with it. But the reality is, like, you get so excited. And uh, when Valentine's is on a Sunday, uh, my only hope is that you teachers made sure you still still did the Valentine's bags or boxes and let them pass them out. It's so important. It's childhood formational experience. But what I would like to do is dive in today and talk about love. And you're like, oh, how typical. Don't you judge me. Because I think this is an important conversation conversation for us to have. So we're going to look first at our text out of 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body over to the hardship so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It isn't self-seeking. It's not um, easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. And it always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there is tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now... We see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. When we look at Scripture and we realize what the Apostle Paul is driving at is he's trying to help us understand that love actually is something. Love, in our culture, we have created love to be this kind of ethereal thing. We can talk about it as like this, this unattainable force, my love force. I want to have that. That's Star Wars love, when you have love force. Um, But we have this, this, this weird, it's like I said, kind of an ethereal thing. Like it's just this bigger, larger than life thing. But did you notice what our kids in the video said? Did you catch what they were doing? Our kids really pointed out that love to them is a verb. If you're not good at grammar, a verb is action. Action. Love to a child is action. It's kindness. It's Jesus. It's giving the gift of chocolates or flowers. It's, it's in motion. It's an action. 
Love isn't some um, static thing. It's a dynamic moving thing. It takes effort to show and give love. Jesus Christ was love come down. Jesus Christ is the very love of God that came down. Jesus is theology in practice. What we know and believe of God, we have learned and seen fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the best way for us to know and understand what love is and how God wanted to show us that love. And Jesus did that with his life. He gave his life for us, but he also did this. When I say he gave his life, he gave his life in teaching and leading and calling people to himself. But what he did with that life in his teachings quite often was tell stories, trying to reveal maybe the truer nature of what love is. And I would like to do that with you today. I would like to talk about a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. We may know this story, but it's got so many cultural undertones that uh, we would do well to tune into it and catch the deeper message of love. I have coffee today, by the way, because first of all, I, I love coffee. I think that, amen, like preach all day. But it's like nine degrees, so I'm having coffee. Uh, The parable of the Good Samaritan. It says this, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up and asked Jesus, teacher, so you already know something's up, right? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus returned to him a question. What is the law of God saying? How do you read it? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, you can almost see him be like, boom, you answered well. You answered well. And Jesus was kind of done. He was letting him move on. The teacher, though, wanting to justify himself, says this. And who's my neighbor He shouldn't have done this. But thankfully in the story, he did. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, a certain man was going down to Jericho from Jerusalem when bandits came off the road and they jumped him. And they beat him up, they stripped him naked, they robbed him and left him for dead. Now, a priest was coming up on that same road and he saw the man and he crossed over to the other side and passed him by. And a Levite was also traveling on the road. He saw the man, and he saw him bleeding and dying, and he saw him and crossed over to the other side and made his way past. Then a Samaritan came, and he saw the man, and he took pity on him, and he got off of his donkey, and he bandaged his wounds and poured oil on them, and he put him onto his donkey, rode him to an inn, and put him in the inn and said, take care of him. I will be back after I attend to my affairs, and when I return, I will pay his debts, but here is two denarii to cover the expenses thus far. He says, here's enough to cover the expenses while I'm away. And he leaves. And then Jesus asks the teacher of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? I can't even tell you how awesome this is. Because what's happening is we have to understand a small cultural, large for them, cultural construct. First of all, a priest is a Levite. It's 
it's just a really big deal, right? And then not only a priest, but then a Levite, uh, someone of the tribe of Levi, pass this person by. The best of the best, the holiest of the holy, pass this guy by. The best Jewish people ignored his needs. And the worst person possible. Think of somebody you don't like that's who Jesus did pointed to in this. When he says a Samaritan, there is a special kind of hate for Samaritans in the heart of the Jewish people. And I know it sounds mean, but they really, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They hated each other. There's cultural history and all this to it. So for Jesus to point out that the Samaritan was the good person and these two good people, a priest and a Levite, were bad, and then to ask the teacher of the law, in my story, which one of these is, um, is, is a good neighbor to this person? It's cruel. Here, here's what it's like for me. I'm no fan of Tom Brady. He was the Patriots quarterback. He tormented uh, the AFC for a number of years and won six Super Bowls, right? Went to nine Super Bowls, only won six. <laughs> but, um, but, but I'm not a big fan of him. I like him because the dude's a magician with a football. He's great, right? But I don't like him. I, I don't, it's hard for me to root for him. I also super don't like the Kansas City Chiefs. And when the Super Bowl came this year and I had to choose between the bad and the ugly and the good Denver Broncos were long lost and forgotten, it's hard to root. I, it was hard to root for one. Why? Because I didn't like either option. This, pre, this, um, this teacher who's asked Jesus this question is in a dilemma. Because when Jesus says, which one of these has been a neighbor to him? Now he has to answer a question he didn't want to answer. He has to be like, the Samaritan. I mean, you can just feel it eking out of him. The Samaritan was the one who was a better neighbor. And Jesus then says, Go and do likewise. Go be like him. Oh, man, it is just awesome. I love that he did that. Go and be like the person that you think is super low and despicable. They're better than you. I, I just think it's an amazing opportunity. And Jesus isn't being cruel. He's revealing something of their heart. But what I would like to do is take a moment and talk about what love isn't. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, we hear a list of things that love is not. It is not, it says love does not envy, so it's not envious. The robbers wanted in the story of the Good Samaritan, saw some dude, probably dressed pretty nice, and thought, we want his robes and all his money, and we will beat his robes off of him and steal all his money. And they did that. They envied what he had, and then they took it from him. They took it from him. They, they desired what wasn't theirs, and they took it. Envy is extra vile. It doesn't mean I just want what you have. It means I want you not to have it. So envy has no part in love. It says that it's not boastful. It's not, it's not braggadocious, right? Like, like if, you're, if you're a husband and you're not really good at helping around the house and you do the dishes two nights in a row for dinner and you're like, family, I don't want to draw attention to myself, but everybody look at me, I've done dishes two nights in a row. That's really what we're talking about here. It's not boastful. It's not, self, it's not kind of pointing back and celebrating you. Love is not about you. And so when you look at love being boastful, it doesn't make a list of all the nice things you've done and demand that those be celebrated or looked up to or compare who did more and who loved more. That's not how love works. 
It is not proud. Love is not proud. The expert in the law, seeking to justify himself, said, who's my neighbor? What did Jesus do? He humbled him. Love is not proud. It doesn't dishonor. I think this is really, I think we have a cultural moment to say this. We dishonor people in this culture unbelievably. We dehumanize them in this culture. People, it's, it's shocking. Let me just say it this way. The robbers in the story of the Good Samaritan, the thieves, they robbed him, then they stripped him and left him in a situation causing him public shame and disgrace. It would have been a shame and disgrace for that man to be seen in such a state. Love never dishonors another person. Love never takes their dignity, pushes them down, devalues them in the words and actions of the other person. Love never dishonors. And I'll be honest, like look, look at what goes on in our 24-hour news cycle. Look what goes on in our social media, how we can dishonor and troll people and hate people just because we disagree with something and we can absolutely dehumanize them. Love never dishonors. It is not self-seeking. The priest and the Levite had somewhere to be. Notice this, the story says, that the, the man was walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So it would have been inland towards the Jordan River. He was walking this road down there. And the priest and the Levite were probably coming up from the Judean foothills towards Jerusalem to do what? Think of me driving to work. They were a pastor on their way to the office. They were headed to church to do their job. And they were going to go be good people. And they went around the person who was in desperate need. This guy was probably headed somewhere, maybe home. And they were like, oh, sorry, I have somewhere important to be. Your grievous naked injuries are kind of getting in the way of the Lord's work. They step aside and they go around him. They had places they had to be. And they were above that type of service. They were too good to get down and get dirty in what this man, the state he was in. And there's so many things about this. This man was obviously bloody and beat up and naked. He would have been considered unclean, which would have made the priest or the Levite who touched him unclean and unable to fulfill their service in the religion at the temple. But what Jesus is saying is your duty at the temple is actually nowhere near as big as your duty to this person. Jesus is valuing that they would go and get, well, unclean serving. But they were too important for that kind of work. They don't do that kind of thing. They crossed over and avoided him. That love is not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. We talked about this a lot with self-control a few weeks ago. Man, that, that was a rough week uh, for me. I felt like that three-week series that I, or three weeks in a row I taught, I was preaching it myself, and self-control was one of them. Love is not easily angered. It doesn't mean maybe you don't have a short fuse. It means you just don't give in to it. Love is not easily angered. That's a huge one. Love does not delight in evil. The robbers, let's look at them again. When we look at the robbers, 
we can look at the book of Proverbs and see an image, an image of who these people are. It says this in Proverbs 12, 6. The, um, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the speech of the upright rescues them. We've talked about this before, church. And you may not be somebody who hides on the side of the road ready to rob people. I super hope you're not doing that. That's just given. But don't be so quick to justify yourself if your words lie in wait to shed the blood of someone emotionally. If you lie in wait to, uh, for someone to say, hey, how's so-and-so? Oh, didn't you hear? Oh, my goodness. And you kind of whisper that little thing. And you share that little gossip. I think it was yesterday's devotion, um, February, I don't even know what. I think it was February 9th where it talked about gossip and guarding your tongue. And our d- devotional, read that one. That's what this is talking about. We have to guard our tongues and we have to recognize lying in wait to shed blood can be something done in gossip. It can be gutting someone's character for no justifiable reason. So what is love? If, you know, I mean, it's back to that song. I'm not gonna sing it this time because I break into dance and that is not love. So, um, so what we have to do is look, what is love? What is love? What are some of the things that we can say are, um, are evidences of love? And the first thing I'll say is this. Love is patient. It's patient. Jesus Christ was patient with that teacher. Teacher, what do you say? You know, how can I inherit eternal life? That guy asking Jesus the question was one billion percent sure that he was going to get eternal life. And Jesus Christ was patient with him. He listened to his questions. He didn't dismiss him, even though Jesus knew all this dude was trying to do was either entrap Jesus or puff himself up and look good in front of his buddies. And yet Jesus was patient with him. Jesus helped him understand with a story that he didn't have to tell that he needed to change the posture of his heart. Jesus was patient with him. And I'll tell you this, Jesus is infinitely patient with us. He's patient with us. When we stumble into those habitual sins, Jesus comes to us and calls us. He's always calling us back. When, we, when will you repent and follow me? But he never quits calling. He's patient. He loves us. He endures our proverbial temper tantrums. He's patient. Love is kind. The Samaritan man in our story took pity on someone he was supposed to hate. He took pity on someone he was supposed to hate. So often we don't even see each other anymore. We don't see each other. Here's what's scary about it. And it's a scary moment in our world and especially in our nation. We don't see each other. We see movements. We see polarity and other sides. And I can hate you for your beliefs. And I don't even have, I can dehumanize you and hate what you are because you represent a certain ideology. And I hate that. And we dehumanize it. And we show no kindness and we justify like absolutely being horrible to one another. Love is kind. And so often in this world, we don't see each other. Seeing each other is really the beginning of kindness. Seeing beyond the facade. I, I think one of the things I'm so glad I learned from my wife when we were newlyweds, I had grown up in San Diego uh, through my, my teen years, and I got really um, indifferent to homelessness because there were a lot of people who enjoyed living on the beach and having no jobs and smoking a bunch of herb and hanging out. 
and I wasn't going to fund their lifestyle. I work hard, and I'm not going to do that, right? So I had this kind of holier-than-thou mentality. And when we were newlyweds, I remember Erica, she would be like, well, we could help them. And I'm like, they don't need help. Other people give. You know, I was very calloused to people as I walked by. And one of the things God convicted in me was seeing them, and I'll never forget it. I had an experience where I saw desperation in someone's eyes, and it just wrecked me. I had seen them all, but then when I really saw a person, there was a kindness in me that never went away. Not because of me, but because God slowed me down. He used my wife to see them. And what we have to understand is we aren't a mass of people. We are individuals created in the image of God, and we need to see. We need to see one another. And what this Samaritan do? He saw the man. He saw him. He took pity on him. His seeing him didn't just stay at pity, though. It turned into love, an action, a verb. He began to move and act on the man's behalf. It also says that uh, one of the things love is, is that some love rejoices with the truth. Real love tells the truth. Jesus didn't um, hide from speaking the truth. He would speak it in love, but let's be honest, with the expert who stood up to test him, Jesus didn't play nice with him. He put him on the spot and revealed, as he wanted to reveal his holiness publicly, Jesus revealed kind of his broken ethic publicly. He spoke the truth. He rejoiced in the truth, hoping to awaken him, loving him enough to speak a hard word. At the Foundry Church, I say it this way quite often, I refuse to send people to hell well fed. So if you come here and you have habitual, willful, sinful life patterns, and it's evident, and you ask, Pastor Eric, is there a way that God would endorse this? I will say, no, absolutely not. You are to be made into the image of Jesus, not him into yours. That has to die in you. That's not cruelty. That's actually the greatest act of love is to speak the truth and rejoice in it. Also, love always protects. I love this part of it. Think of what the Samaritan did. When everybody ran by, walked by, and I, I, it doesn't say this, but I wonder, was the implication that the, the Levite and the priest probably walked by and wondered, where are the bandits? Am I in danger? But the, the Samaritan was like, this guy's in trouble. And he went and protected him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil on them, helped him, got him out of a vulnerable place. He took him somewhere safe. And it was, it was not easy in the same way. Here's the thing. We are to heal, not hurt others. We are to speak protection and act protectively for the world around us. Even if we're not the cause of someone's hurt, we should be a place of healing and safety. We can't look at someone who's hurt and say, well, I'm glad I didn't do that. No, you're called to be the one bandaging the wound. Loving in action means getting down and helping those in desperate need. Even when you don't want to, even when it inconveniences you. Final thing. Uh, not final, but the next thing. Love always trusts. Assuming the best is a value in this church. It's hard to do. It's hard to do because we all have our own human nature, our own brokenness. But one of the things that we have to do is will ourselves to assume the best motive in someone. 
Now you may have to go and dig in a little to something. If things don't line up, you can say, okay, I'm assuming the best, but assuming the best may mean I ask a clarifying question or two to make sure I get to the root of what you're saying and get the truth. It doesn't mean I don't believe you. It means I want the truth and things aren't lining up. The reality of that is sometimes loving people may have questions that cause us to feel uncomfortable, but to assume the best is to get to the truth. And to assume the best doesn't mean, I wonder if they're lying to me. I, I mean, one of the, I think it's a good trait in me, but it's something that gets me in trouble is I take people at face value. I'll buy a 1998 Yugo for 40 grand because someone tells me it's a Rolls Royce. I'm like, really? an ugly rolls, but I finally got me a Bentley. You know, like I, I, I do have a little bit of a problem with that. It does for me quite often come naturally until you torch me. Oh, after you've hurt my feelings, because I'm such a feeling person, I've done a personality thing. I'm like a giant human nerve. Um, but the reality is after you've hurt me, it's super hard for me to assume the best. It is laborious for me to assume the best. You're like, good morning. What does that mean? Right? Anybody, like, that's true. It's hard to assume the best when you've been hurt. But the fact is, sometimes when you trust, when you trust someone, you ask dangerous and tough questions. And you lean in. I mean, I, I love this story of the Good Samaritan when, um, when he helps this guy out. He's not suspicious. He's not suspicious. He gives the two denarii to the, the, to the innkeeper, and he's not like this. Don't you go buying something for yourself. I'll be back. And don't let him rack up a big liquor bill in the honor bar. No. No, only the bare necessities. Don't you, you guys don't take advantage of me. I'll be back to take it. No, he doesn't do that. He says, look after him. And whatever is owed from his account, I will pay. He assumes the best of someone he doesn't even know. It's really quite remarkable. He's not worried that he's going to rack up a room service bill on his account. He's worried that the man is safe. He trusts. It's kind of a beautiful thing. And love hopes. The man on the side of the road needed hope. Can you imagine laying there when other people passed by? Can you imagine... Oh, the, just the emptiness, the fear. Stopping to help someone, it tells them you have hope for them. They're not a lost cause. One of the signs we have is we have a place for you, right? And saying that to someone who has no hope of being included or connected with, um, it, it says, like, or the sign, are you broken? Are you too far gone? There's hope. When I think of these things, I think it's really important. It's important that we remember that when we reach out to people who are in desperate situations or when we reach out to people who are really struggling or just being, if we just reach out and love someone, we are communicating that we believe the hope of Jesus Christ is not just for me, it's for you too. So when we reach out, we're doing one of the most evangelistic things we can do. We're reaching into their moment of need, not as a savior, but as someone who stands believing in the hope of Christ being present for them. And we're able to offer hope. And it makes me think of Jeremiah 29, 33. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to bless you and prosper you, not to harm you, to give you future and a hope. 
Sometimes we find ourselves around people who have no hope. And it is our responsibility, church, to love them and in the verb version of that to offer the hope of reaching out saying, I don't think you're too far gone. I don't think you're lost beyond grace's grasp. The reality is hopeful people are the most delightful, winsome Christians I know. They sit in meetings at businesses, at churches, at different things, and they, they whisper hopeful possibilities. They whisper faith in their actions. They are literally looking and meeting new people, hopeful for connection and purpose in it. They are literally like bubbles. They're wonderful. Hope is beautifully buoyant. And when we see these people, and we recognize that they see almost every opportunity or everything that comes past them is an opportunity and a promise of, an, of something that could be. They engage life differently. Love, hopes. And the hope is rooted in Jesus Christ. Finally, it perseveres. It doesn't give up. The man didn't bandage that guy's wounds and think, wow, dude, you are jacked up. It, I, think, I think it's done. No. He bandaged him up, and then he took him somewhere, and he did so at his expense. He took him to the inn. He paid for his care, and here's the reality. If we're going to be people who love, it is going to interrupt our lives. Love is going to interrupt your plan for retirement, your plan for comfort. Love is very much going to do that, but here's the thing. It's going to do it in the most beautiful way possible. It's going to fulfill your purpose. I'll tell you this, the man in this story, it, it, this, this broken, robbed man interrupted his day. It interrupted his wallet. It interrupted his travel. It interrupted his business plans. But that did not stop him. Why? Because love perseveres. I just think of a mom who's super duper tired and her kids have been up all night and one's been sick and one needs to eat and she's so tired, her whole face hurts and she thinks, how am I gonna do this today? And a kid calls her name and she's like, what's that? And she talks so nice and so sweet and perseveres, not because she feels like it, but because she loves them. Love perseveres. And the greatest example of love that perseveres is our Heavenly Father. He loved you from the beginning. He loves you from then till now and into eternity. His love is never ending. He waited for you, had mercy on you, sent his son to pay the price for you so that you could be in his family. He's patient when you make mistakes and he forgives you. Love endures. Love is patient and love is persevering. I love that. It's right there. So what we have to do is recognize one glorious truth. God is love. The love I just described to you seems beyond our capacity, but I will tell you this. As a spirit-filled Christian, that kind of love is within your reach. Ask the Spirit of God to fill you. Ask the Spirit of God to fill you and allow you to love even as Christ and God your Heavenly Father have loved you at great personal expense. At great personal expense. But what a beautiful thing in that relationship. What is the chief end and purpose of man? To know God and enjoy Him forever. And that great enjoyment comes in one place. In the love 
that is given to us from our Heavenly Father that we get to share with the rest of the world that is desperately searching for a love that will last. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for this example. Thank you for the opportunity to love, but also, God, thank you that we were first loved, that you loved us long before we knew what love could ever be. And I pray, God, that even as we turn our hearts in this time to wrestle with what love is, that you would teach us how to love the world in return, that we would love in real and costly ways for the glory of Jesus. Thank you for loving us, who while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Thank you for loving us and giving us new life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So one fun little thing, Jeremiah 29, 33 doesn't exist. <laughs> Some days it's great to be me. I'd like to thank Ian Kuman for pointing that out. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. I knew that. No, that's not true. I, I totally messed it up and called it a, a verse that doesn't exist. But that being, regardless, whatever, leave that behind. Um, we're so excited for you to go out and literally love the world as Jesus Christ has loved you. Um, if you feel like you're responding to the love of God and you want to be loved in a way um, that I explained, that Jesus Christ will love you, he will bandage what hurts and he will heal you and forgive your sins and you have never experienced that, I invite you. You can pray a prayer by yourself right now. Just say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you to forgive me and I trust that your life, death, and resurrection has redeemed me from my sin. I give my sin to you and trust you as my savior. If you've prayed that prayer and you want uh, to know more, we would love to share with you the depth of what it means to give your life to Christ and walk in a relationship with him. If you are a Christian and you know that Jesus loves you and you've received him into your life, I commend you to go and love this world in a way that it reflects how Jesus loved it. Yes, it'll be costly, but it'll be the most wonderful thing you ever do with your life. So as you go from this place to love this world, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have a very happy Valentine's Day weekend. We're out. <laughs>